open up to Isaiah, and we are going to be on chapter 36 of Isaiah. Here's the beauty. as we, We've actually finished the first section of Isaiah, and in the first section of Isaiah, it leads us up to a, uh, a historical narrative. It's a historical narrative that we can also study in the book of Kings, but uh, I love where it's placed here in Isaiah, because up until this point, Isaiah has been speaking both to uh, the northern kingdom, remember the ten tribes that were up north, they were the tribes, they were the people of the tribes who didn't want to follow God's plan for their life anymore. They were kind of in rebellion, they wanted to do their own thing, worship their own way, you know, and, and so they wanted to worship other gods, what have you, so they went to the north, and uh, that's the, often called the ten lost tribes. And the ten tribes uh, that were gathered up there. Then there were two tribes, in essence, that stayed in the south, stayed in Jerusalem, in Judah. And they stayed in Judah because their desire was to follow the Lord. Now, they weren't perfect. They were messed up too. The, the guys in the north were more messed up, if that made them feel any better. And the reality is, the northern kingdom there, they went into bondage, even though Isaiah prophesied to them, and let them know, hey guys, here's what's going on. The, the, Shennacherib is on his way. Shennacherib was the king of Assyria. Assyria was the power in the land at that time. And he would say, Shennacherib's coming, and he's going to take you into captivity. You know, apart from repentance and turning your heart back to the Lord, you're going into captivity. And, and they relied on a very, uh, various other things to save them. <clears throat> You'll remember as Isaiah prophesied, they, they trusted in Egypt. They trusted in money. They tried to pay them off. They tried to do all these things that would spare them from judgment. And ultimately, for the northern kingdom, judgment came. And then Isaiah turns his, his attention to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, because Shennacherib's on his way there now. And as he's on his way there, he's telling, he's telling Jerusalem the same thing. Don't put your hope and trust in Egypt. Don't put your hope and trust in might of arms. Don't put your hope and trust in your wealth. Put your hope and trust in God. But the southern kingdom kind of wavered in that. They, they would do okay, but then they would fall back. Much like we do, right? Because when we face things in our life and we, we allow those situations that, that come against us to, to knock us off our groove. And the next thing you know, we're, we're relying on something else. Or we're getting, getting all, um, I don't know if passion is the right word, but we get... We get all focused on other things, something else, something else that's going to save uh, the next president, the impeach the president we have, overturn Congress, whatever those things. None of those things are going to change our world. The only thing that's going to change the world is the Spirit of God working in the lives of believers. That's what's going to change the world. And they were the same way. They would, they would start to get focused on these other things. Well, as we come to chapter 36... <clears throat> Isaiah is going to give us a historical narrative on what happened. Okay, there they are in Jerusalem, kind of wavering in their faith. Shennacherib and his army, 185,000 strong outside the city gates. And we're going to get a chance to hear what takes place as we take a look. So if you join me in Isaiah chapter 36, we'll start off in verse 1 and, and see what the Lord has for us. As we go through. Now, as we take a look, it begins like this. Now, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, the Shennacherib, king of Assyria, 
came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. That's the southern kingdom. 46 fortified cities fell. Judah, in essence, left alone. 46 cities were utterly destroyed. In fact, uh, by way of archaeology, they discovered a pit um, outside of a city with 1,500 dead buried in it that they attribute to the battle of Shennacherib when he came down through the land. So they were a bloodthirsty, uh, a violent people. People did not want to be conquered by the Assyrians. But nonetheless, the Assyrians didn't care if you wanted to or not. They were coming to take you. And in the 14th year, he begins his conquest. Now, as he comes down through, it says, Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So roughly um, the distance, I think, is somewhere in the neighborhood of of 10 miles or so from, their, from the last battle that they won. They're coming down to Jerusalem, and he sends this fella, this Rabshakeh. That's not his name, that's his title. That's like saying his right-hand man, the, the main guy, the, his general, his whatever you want to call him. The vice president, the, the next to the king, the sergeant at arms in the biker club, whatever. This is the guy that was his right hand. And Rabshakeh uh, comes to Jerusalem and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to meet him. So Hezekiah sends out three of his guys to go talk with him. So he's standing right outside of the, of the gates there, the city. They go outside to meet him in that place. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You see, as soon as Shennacherib took power of Assyria, immediately all these other nations began to rebel. It was pretty common in that time. Anytime there was a new king, these people that were in subjection to, to him or to that king would decide, hey, uh, we don't have to be subjection to you. You haven't proven that you can take us yet. And Hezekiah was one of those guys. Hey, hey we're in rebellion. We're not going to just take whatever you have to, to sell us. So in rebellion... He, he raises up this banner, and this guy comes to him and says, Now, where is your trust for the confidence you have to rebel against us? What are you thinking? I mean, you don't actually think you can win. You don't actually think that, that you have some kind of hope. This is the point that he's bringing up. So I say to you, uh, I say you speak of having plans and the powerful war, but they're just mere words. He's saying the threats that you're, this idea that you can rebel against us. Now keep in mind, Assyria was the power in the world. There was nobody else. Babylon hadn't risen to power yet. Assyria reigned. And Assyria reigns for something like 700 years. So next time we as uh, uh, American citizens start to feel proud of our 200 years of, uh, of that 200 years, what have we ruled 50 75 we're failing now so it's not going to be long but assyria ruled for for 700 years or more 
So this is a power. This is the power of the time. Rebelling against them is Hezekiah, this king, who has been floundering in his relationship with God, and he's now face-to-face with a right-hand man with this great army who's saying, what are you doing? You can't stand against us. And as I was studying for this, I could not help but to hear the, the words of doctors, you know, when they give us diagnoses. And they say, oh, you have cancer. Or I remember when the doctors talked to Cindy, when Cindy was first diagnosed, they gave her two months to live. And I remember telling Pastor Gerald, who are they? Her breath is not in their hands. But they would say, well, and what is this confidence that you have? And where have you placed your trust? You know, if if you don't follow this prescribed treatment, then you don't have any hope. It's just not going to work out. And the doctor said two months to live. And she went to Mexico. And she went on a juice diet, one of those uh, weird alternative treatments. And they felt like that's where the Lord led them. And she lived more than a year. So I guess the doctors didn't know what they were talking about. Just like Rabshakeh, standing before Hezekiah saying, how can you stand against us? How can you stand in the face of so great an enemy? What hope can you possibly have? You say you're ready for war, but they're empty words. What can you do? And the truth is the same. Nothing. I can't do anything. But I know who can. And as he comes before him in this place, he goes on to tell him, Now, not only do you have these empty words, but now in whom do you trust that you will rebel against me? Where have you placed your trust? Who do you think is going to save you? And see, he goes on, Look. You are trusting in the staff of the broken reed, Egypt. Now you remember back in chapter 28, Isaiah told him, don't trust in Egypt. You put your your trust in Egypt, Egypt's going to fail. God over and over was telling him, put your trust in me, put your trust in me. And they floundered and they did make a treaty with Egypt, but Egypt has already been destroyed. Before Shennacherib comes down, Egypt has already been obliterated. And they are... Wiped out just like anybody else. And so he says, I know, I know, you're hoping on this broken reed. This might that was Egypt. And you remember, Egypt was powerful once, right? When we study history, what do we notice about history? We notice that there are countries that rise to great power and then fall. And then rise to power and fall. And rise to power and fall. It's always been that way. And the same thing has taken place here. Egypt has been beaten down. He says, you were trusting in this broken reed in Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust him. Literally, he's saying, if you ally yourself with Egypt, you're allying yourself with death. That's the same thing God told him. If you ally yourself with Egypt, you're allying yourself with death. They can't save you. And so here's this guy standing outside the city. There's the gates, the wall, these three guys standing in front of him. And they're just, he's just hollering at them about who are you to stand against us? Who are you to be able to do this? Oh, I know you think you're putting your faith, your trust in Egypt. Well, let me just tell you, Egypt is worthless. 
And then he goes on. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now here's what people do that don't have a relationship with God. They think they know what's going on. They think they know what's happening and they make snap judgments about what you believe or, or where you stand on an issue. Here's what happened. Hezekiah starts a reform. Now, where was it that God was worshipped? God's worshipped in the temple. What was on the high places? All the altars to false gods. And Hezekiah was tearing them all down. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you're going to put your faith in the Lord God? I've seen Hezekiah tearing down all his altars. You're, you're kind of hung there. He's saying you can only worship God in this one place. And, and, you know, coming from a mindset of not really having any idea about what's going on, he makes this snap judgment. We see the same thing in the world, don't we? The world will assume they know what Christianity is all about. To ask them now, they would say primarily Christianity is all about bigotry. And this idea that nobody's good enough because they don't understand grace. They think when we say we're all sinners, we're all lost, nobody is righteous, and we tell people that they can't be good enough to go into heaven, and we tell people that this lifestyle or that lifestyle is sinful in the eyes of God, they think that we're just saying that they're not good enough. They don't understand grace. They think they know, but they don't really know. And here we have Rob Shekha. He's saying, hey, God's not going to be with you. Now, therefore, I urge you in verse 8, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses. So now he's mocking them more. Listen, this is what he's saying. Look, you guys are so lame. I'll give you 2,000 horses, but if I do, you won't even have anybody to ride them. That would be like a guy saying, you know, we're so much more powerful than you. We'll give you 2,000 tanks, but you're not smart enough to drive any of them. So they're not going to do you any good. This is what he's saying. Outside the gate, there's the wall. Three guys standing in front of them. You think that there's a crowd building around yet? Maybe standing up on the walls, looking over top, saying, man, what's going on? Who's this guy? Oh, no, Shennacherib, the mighty army's here, you know. What's going to happen? What's going on? So this is what he says to them. In verse 9, how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants? And you put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? See, little by little, he's knocking down all man's plans. Little by little, he's eroding at their their trust in all these other things and the reality is if we understand what god's word teaches we shouldn't have our faith and trust in all them things anyway oh i'm going to just save enough money in the bank so that i'm going to be okay no matter what yeah that's what they thought right before the great depression and what happened at the bank was nothing there it's just all gone You can blame whoever you want to blame, but whatever you had your trust in, now it's gone. Where does your trust need to be? The Lord told his people, I don't want you to trust in horses and chariots. Why? Because you'll put all your hope in them instead of in me. You put your hope in me. He said, I don't want you to trust in riches, gold and silver. Why? Because if you put your hope in them and they're gone, you're going to be disappointed. If you put your hope in me, you're going to be fine. Keep your hope 
and trust where it needs to be. <clears throat> well, Reb Shaka, now he's going to declare the covenantal name of God. Look, have I now come up to you without the Lord? Look at what it says. That's capital L-O-R-D. He just pronounced the name of God. He didn't just say like we say now, well, don't I have God on my side? He used his name. Yah, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, whatever you want to call it. He just said, I have Almighty God on my side. So he's saying, listen, you may have your, your trust here. That's squash. You have your trust there. That's not going to work. You think all these things are going to save you. Not only that, but your God has sent me to wipe you out. This is what he's declaring to them. To, to destroy, against this land, to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Coming against God's people in the name of God. Huh. That ever happened before? How about in about the year 1000? When Pope was in control, the church had risen to power. And what did we know about power? Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Oh, yeah. So what did they do? They said, listen, the, the Holy Land is in the hands of the infidel, people who don't believe. So I'm going to send you over there on a holy war. Does that sound familiar? I'm going to send you on a holy war. And just so you know and you're willing to go, let me tell you this. Anything you do in the name of a holy war is already forgiven. You cannot commit sin in a holy war. Anything you do is covered. That's what he said. Pope gave him absolution. Anything you take in the name of a holy war is yours. So they went. They found themselves cut off from food. They found themselves not easily resupplied. For the most part, the crusades were a big mess. But one of the things that they did accomplish was in the, the mind of a group that was coming on, we know today as Islam, following a prophet named Muhammad. You ever heard of jihad, right? What is it? Holy War. Who taught him that title? Those professing to be sent by the name of God. It's nothing new, right? How many wars have been fought in the name of God? How many times has blood been shed in God's name when God never sent them in the first place? You know, Germany believed that they were doing God's will. Just because you can say, God told me, doesn't mean God told you anything. Words are cheap. How do we know the truth? Because the truth will always line up with God's word. Well, here's the thing. They were able to pull out verses. Germany was able to pull out verses and, and justify what they did. What is it that Paul said? I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God's word. The whole counsel. 
I don't go anywhere based on one verse someone can pull out of context in some rogue book and lay out and say, well, looky here. If I did that, I could pull out verses that tell us to go hang ourselves. That's what Judas did. Judas hung himself. And then I pull up another verse. Now you go and do likewise. They don't have anything to do with each other, do they? No. You can make the word say anything you want to, but not if you follow context and the whole counsel of God's word. So when I see this, I'm reminded, hey, we turn on the news and we see the things that are happening in our world today, but what did God's word declare to us? God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The church, at least in name, sowed a holy war. What does it reap? Holy war. Same, same. So here comes this guy. Just like that. Was God really on his side? Did God really send him? No, he didn't. How do we know? We're going to read about it in a minute. The Lord's going to lay it out for us. But listen, this is what he's saying. So look at verse 11. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants, speak to us, in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. The crowd's gathering. Remember, I told you, he's standing by that gate. Here's those three guys, people up on the wall, people on the other side of the gate. They're listening, and they're hearing all these things that this guy's saying. What's his purpose? To, to break the heart of the people, to rebel against their leadership. They might even be able to take the city easier. They might be able to accomplish more. So this is what he's trying to do. So, so what's his response? So Rabshakeh said... Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? You see him turn to the people? I'll talk to them. I'll tell them they need to know. Why? What's he say? Who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Well, that bring it all back to reality, won't it? That's the way siege warfare was. They would cut off the city from everything. Starve the people to death. It it happened over and over and over again in history. And this is what he's declaring, trying to steal their heart. Trying to steal their heart. But as you hold your finger there, turn to the left, to the psalm. Psalms 131. Short little psalm. And uh, it's uh, important for those of us maybe who are standing on the wall overhearing. The psalm of the sense of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. As, he, as I was looking at that psalm, I was just thinking, man, it's, that, that's what you would want to, to consider as you're hearing these things, seeing these things. As we look at our world, as we see the economy, as we see the, the Gog-Magog invasion perhaps being prepared even right now on the borders of Israel as 
All of those nations that are required to go to war against them have all aligned themselves together and they have a reason and a purpose to fight. And now during it all in this embargo that that Israel has, all the pieces on the chessboard are laid out. You can turn on the TV tomorrow and find out it's happening. Ezekiel chapter 38. There it is. But the psalmist would say, you know, I'm not going to worry myself about matters that are too high for me. I'm going to be like that wean child with his mother. You know that wean child that, that doesn't any longer have the, that closeness that at one time he had with his mom. But now, what's a wean child like in the arms of his mama? Quiet. What's a wean child like without mama? Screaming. That's how I remember it. With my kids. And he says, I'm going to be like a wean child with mama. Israel, trust in the Lord your God. Trust God. He knows what he is doing. And the same thing goes for these guys standing on a wall, hearing all these crazy things. What are you going to do? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. So now he's, he's making sure everybody understands him. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you to trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you will eat from his own vine, and every one will from his own fig tree, and every one of you will drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. What's he saying? Okay, so you guys surrender, and I'll let you hang out here for a while until I take you away. That, it sounds kind of nice, right? He left out the part about putting a hook through your nose and all the things that Assyria did when they took their captives to other lands. And he's trying to, to smooth it all over. And he says in verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. He's shouting to the people on the wall, the people around the city, Hey, don't believe that Hezekiah is going to tell you the Lord will deliver you. Don't believe him. Don't put your trust in that. We're going to destroy you all. And your God cannot save you. Doesn't the world tell us that today? The world ridicules the faith of believers. Oh, they put their trust in God. What's he going to do? How many times do they put their trust in God and God has not come through? I can tell you, never. Put your trust in God. He always comes through. The problem is how we see coming through. Oh, only if it works according to my plan. If it works according to my plan, I've been saved. If not, I haven't. But here they are. Hey, your God can't save you. He can't preserve you. And look at verse 19. Here he goes. Where are the gods of Hamath, of Arpad? Where are the gods of, of Sepharvim 
And indeed, have they have or blah blah blah. Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands has delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Israel from my hand? But they held their peace, and they answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was do not answer him. Then Eliakim and Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And so it was that King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Remember how I told you he was kind of fluctuating? On again, off again? Well, he's on now. You know how sometimes the Lord has to bring us to a place where your back's against the wall to get you to stand? But it was good that he did. Because in that place, we learn to stand for him. We learn to stand for the Lord. We learn to do what God's called us to. So he goes into the house of the Lord. He comes with repentance and humility with unveiled face. No mask. Lord, we're in trouble. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household of Shebna, the scribe, the elders, the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, the day, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. He said, Oh, it's, it's all falling apart. The whole thing's falling apart. Everything is going to pot right now. It may be that the Lord, oh, here he goes, your God. It may be that the Lord, your God, will heal the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord, your God, has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah sent a message to Isaiah. What was it? You pray that your God might help us. So he's not all the way there yet. He's not all the way there. So Isaiah is going to bring this word to him. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to him, Thus you will say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him. He will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he heard he had departed from Lachish. What happened? The army left. The army left. They heard a rumor that another army was coming against them. And they pulled out. So now they're not sitting right outside the city wall. Just like God said... Don't worry about what they said. They're going to hear a rumor and leave. So they hear this rumor and go. And the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia. He has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent a messenger to Hezekiah. So now the army's not there. He writes a letter. And he sends a letter back to Hezekiah. Saying, by the way, I haven't forgotten about you. Don't think that we're not still coming. So as he sends this letter to King Hezekiah, this is what it says. Thus you will speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Oh, don't let, don't, don't, don't start thinking that your God is in some kind of control here. Just because we left when God said we were going to. I just want you to know we're coming back. Just because you, but you notice it, it, he's only focused on one area. What's that one area? That Hezekiah trusts God. Why? Because through Isaiah's prophecy, his prayer, Hezekiah's repentance and humility, Hezekiah is learning to stand. And now, all he's going to focus on is, don't put your trust in God. Before, remember, it was Egypt and horses and all this other junk. Now he's just going to focus on the Lord. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. That phrase, utterly destroying them, literally means that, that Assyria took them as possessions for their gods. So he talks about utterly destroying. He's saying, hey, our gods have taken possession of all these lands, and you shall not be delivered. Have the gods of the nations delivered any of the fathers uh, whom my fathers have destroyed? Gazan, Haran, Roseph, the people of Eden who were in Telazar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iba? Just naming out all these dudes he whooped. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. So the messengers hand it to him. Now, don't, don't miss the picture that's being painted. Here's Hezekiah, the king, receiving from these messengers this letter that says, basically, we're going to whoop you still. He opens up the letter, doesn't freak out. He just opens up the letter. He, he looks at the letter, and then he leaves. Look what he does. And Hezekiah received the letter. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed. Now he's good to go. It was a little bit of a journey for Hezekiah, but he got there. He got there. Hezekiah took the letter, didn't freak out. He opened it up before the Lord and said, Hey, God, look what he says about you. He's not sweating it. He's trusting in the Lord. He's trusting in what God wants to do. And this is his prayer. Here's Hezekiah's prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. How does he start? With worship. That's how he starts. With worship. Who God really is. Verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Why does he say that? Because all other gods don't live. One true God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and they've cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. All these other gods, they were false. They weren't able to deliver. But now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know you are Lord alone. Literally he says, you alone are Yahweh. What was the purpose of his prayer? That God would be glorified. God, save us so that you'll be glorified. 
Don't save us because we're afraid. Don't save us because we're in a bad place. Don't save us because all the worries we have. Save us so that you'll be glorified. It's all about the Lord. It's all about Him being magnified and glorified. We sing songs like, In my life, Lord, be glorified. You guys remember that song? Some people might not, but I won't sing it for you. We sing it, and we don't ever think about what that means. What if in your life God is glorified in your sickness? What if God is glorified in your struggle? What if God is glorified through your death? Do you still sing the song? In my life, Lord, be glorified. That's where Hezekiah was. In whatever's going on, you be glorified. You alone. Then Isaiah, now, he's praying. He didn't ask Isaiah for nothing. He prayed, and God told Isaiah, go talk to Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is getting a visit from Isaiah. And Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Shennacherib of Assyria, the word of the Lord is coming to you. God's going to deliver. Why? Because one man was willing to pray. That ever happened before in scriptures? Yeah, Daniel. One man willing to pray. One willing to come before the Lord. My people called by my name. Verse 22, the virgin, the daughter of Zion has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. What's he saying? Hey, Israel, Jerusalem is going to laugh at you, Assyria, as you leave. You're going to tuck tail and be gone. She's going to be laughing at you. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its cedars and choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest heights to the fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water with the soles of my feet and have dried up all the brooks of defense. Literally, he's saying, this is the boast of King Shennacherib. He's saying, I take with my foot and I can irrigate my crops and stop up the Nile. Really? (laughs) I'd pay money to see that one. This is his boast. Hey, I can do all these things. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? This is God speaking. From ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb and as the grass on the housetops and the grain blighted before it was grown. What did he say? God said, you only conquered someone because I let you. Just like he told Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It's not the kingdom you built. Nebuchadnezzar, it's the kingdom I built and gave to you. Saying the same thing to Shennacherib. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out, you're coming in. Your rage against me because you rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. 
that Joe? Hey, Joe. I hear him somewhere. <laughs> Your tumult has come up before me. This is a rage that he had against God. A rage that he had in his heart about what he was doing. This has come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose. My bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way you came. Remember I told you he was telling the people how nice he was going to deport them. But really they put hooks in their noses and drag them. God says, I'm putting a hook in your nose. And I'm turning you around. And I'm going to send you back where you came from. And then he says to Jerusalem, this will be a sign. This is how you know I'm going to do what I said. You will eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same, and also the third year, uh, uh, and also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. He's saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to be able to plant because of all this chaos going on. But the land is going to give you everything you need. And that's how you'll know what I said to you is true. And in the third year, you're going to be able to plant and sow just like usual. And Assyrians, Shennacherib, and all that chaos, that's all going to be gone. This will be my sign to you. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Take root downward, bear fruit upward. Who gives us the ability to bear fruit? It doesn't have anything to do with us. It's God. So when we bear fruit, where should it go? Upward. The Bible says we're to set our root in the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus Christ. We set our roots downward and our fruit goes upward. That's what the remnant is going to be able to do. That's what the remnant is going to accomplish. Then he goes on to say now... For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, those who escape from Mount Zion, and the the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. He never did. He will not shoot an arrow into the city. He never did. Nor shall come before it with shields. He's never going to get close. Nor build a siege mound against it. He never did. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return. He will not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for my servant David's. Fulfilling the promises promises that he made. Hey, I'm going to keep my promise. You're all going to be okay. I got you. He's not going to be able to do anything. Then the angel of the Lord went out. And killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. When the people arose early in the morning, they were all corpses, all dead. How easy is it for God to deliver? One verse. One verse. Well, what we don't see in this one verse is the time that, that passed between the promise and the fulfillment. But the point is, the fulfillment came. The 185,000-man army was obliterated in one night. Everybody's freaking out. The army's out there, and the next morning they get up and go out, and, oh, they're dead. No army. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to worry about. 
So Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained in Nineveh. So Shennacherib left. He went home. He was done with war. But he reigned for 20 more years. And he never went back to Israel. Wonder why. Never set foot back in Israel again. But it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, struck him down with the sword. They escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarchadon, his son, reigned in his place. What's the purpose of this historical narrative? To tell us, hey, God did it. God delivered. God gave everything that was needed. God accomplished it all. We want to see. We want to know. We want to learn and realize that if we put our faith and trust in God, God will always accomplish His perfect plan. And we never have to be afraid of His perfect plan. Because His perfect plan will always be for our good and His glory. Amen? Amen. Okay, we're going to gather together for a time of prayer, and we'll pray until we stop. So, uh, what?